And now, a special presentation of Faith Fit Radio with your host, Glenda Meekins. Welcome to Faith Fit Radio. I'm Glenda Meekins, a writer for the Florida Catholic Newspaper and the Diocese of Orlando Communications Office. Joining me today is Dr. Lance Mackey, the president of the Orlando Catholic Physicians Guild. He's calling in from Lake Linden, Michigan, where he works part-time while also living and working in Indie Atlantic. Dr. Mackey is somewhat of a Renaissance man. He is a surfer, retired Air Force pilot. He has performed the Nutcracker as a ballet dancer and even rode a Harley Davidson as part of the crew on The Long Ride Home, EWTN's motorcycle-based reality TV show. Dr. Mackey, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Now, um, I know that it's been snowing pretty hard over there. What's the temperature like up there in Lake Linden? Oh, it's about 10 degrees. Um, oh. We've so far gotten over 150 inches of snow oh this year. Gosh. Uh, so um, I'm originally from Michigan, downstate, but I spent a lot of time in what they call the UP, and people up here are known as UPers. They're pretty, pretty tough people. Uh, you have to be to live up here. But for me, it's a, it's a year of refuge. I don't know how long I'll be here. I have a two-year contract. Uh, but today, for example, I went to this beautiful, old-fashioned Catholic church that had statues you would never see anymore. And um, I, I have the opportunity to daily go to this big church by myself and be with God in the in the Eucharist for an hour. Just great. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That sounds beautiful up there. I know that uh, the snow can get annoying, but um, it just, the, you sent me a photo yesterday before uh, as we were planning our interview, and it was just lovely, and what a blessing to be able to have those old churches. Um, so you're an obstetrician and a gynecologist. Tell us a little bit about when you became an OBGYN and why you were drawn to this as your profession. Sure. Well, um, I've been married to Christine uh, now 50 years, last month. Congratulations. And, um, thank you. And, and she is a saint in the making for sure, if not already there. <laughs> um, uh, she was pregnant back in 1970, uh, and I was privileged to see the birth of our first child, Adam. And uh, back then, even though this was progressive California, I had to go to this uh maternity class with these women who looked at me like I had three heads, and, <laughs> and um, I had to go through all this training to get special permission. I'll never forget, as I walked through the, the doors into the uh, delivery area, I had an old-fashioned Polaroid camera, and this nurse came up to me and said, where do you think you're going with that, mister? You're lucky to be back here. You march back <laughs> oh out gosh. there, put that camera away, don't come back uh, with that camera again. And so... I saw my wife give birth, and I just thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And even though it seemed like something I could never do, um, I told my wife then, I said, that's what I want to do. Hmm. Uh, she looked at me with her uh, skeptical eyes and said, yeah, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, got to, I got to do that many, many years later. So that's what started it, uh, actually being in the delivery room, seeing seeing God's uh, you know miracle of a, a newborn child. And I just was uh, blown away, and I still am to this day. I, I enjoy uh, delivering babies. Hmm. Now, I know those were the days when, when the men were not allowed back in the delivery room, and often even women, I guess, had uh, they were put 
out a little bit under, you know, so they could deliver. So a lot has changed since then. Now, the classes sure. you were mentioning, was that the beginning of Lamaze, the Lamaze method? Um, yeah, I think so. I don't even remember. I just remember going there and, uh, you know, trying to pay attention. But it was directed at the women. And, again, I felt like I was way out of place. Uh, nobody spoke to me. They weren't very welcoming. Hmm. Uh, but I just, you know, I had to go through it. But it probably was Lamaze. It was uh, 1970, so um, that was a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So in an interview I had with you last year, you said Catholic doctors must, quote-unquote, evangelize, evangelize, evangelize to refresh ethics and teachings of the Catholic Church. You also said that doctors need to behave and act like Catholic doctors in the way they take care of and treat patients. This isn't an easy task as, as a Catholic. What, what have been some of the moral conflicts that you've faced while practicing, and what are the common moral conflicts that Catholic doctors face? I think it's probably uh, specialty-specific, but I know that uh, as an obstetrician, we have uh, kind of a governing board, which is very non-Catholic in its thinking, um, their view of birth control is totally opposed to what uh, Humana Vitae and the Catholic Church uh, promotes. Um, you know, they're, they're very much into uh, controlling the population growth. And so as a resident, uh, we were trained how to do tubal ligations. Uh, I was in the military, so I was not forced to do abortions. In fact, I'll never forget our Jewish um, program director one day uh asked, uh, well, how many of you people are Catholics? And there were six of us, and we all raised our hands. Yes. And he goes, oh, okay, that's good. He said, how many would you do abortions? And nobody raised their hand. Hmm. He said, well, how many people would do tubal ligations? We all raised our hand, thinking, oh, it's fine. You know, this was back in 1984 uh, through, no, wait, 88 through 92 when I did my residency. So um, the thinking among most Catholic doctors trained in the system is uh, birth control is fine. In fact, it's, it's required. We need to do it. And tubal ligations are something that the patient deserves and, and needs to have. And I had that thinking for the longest time. And thanks to a fellow CMA member, Dr. Helen Krauss, who was uh, the previous uh, Guild president before I took over, questioned me on this a number of years ago. And uh, I just kind of act a little bit stunned, like, mm, well, I don't know. And so I did some reading, and uh, long story short, the more I looked into it, especially when I started to train the Theology of the Body Institute, I realized that I had an obligation to follow the teachings of the Church. And so several years ago, I, I made a public statement that I would no longer do tubal ligations, that I would no longer prescribe birth control pills. And... Um, Day-to-day, -day, it's not a big problem. Uh, a lot of the other doctors, including Catholic doctors, look at me again like there's something wrong with me. But they, they kind of go along with it. At least they, they, they don't say anything. But I have been fired uh, for many jobs for my stance. In fact, I got the pleasure uh, on January 2nd of getting fired from another hospital in mm -hmm. Florida, uh, basically for refusing to do tubal ligations. It's like we offer services um, I was working as a hospitalist, and as part of being a hospitalist, 
they kind of expect that patients will get tubal ligations. It's always been something I've been able to have somebody else do. Um, there are certain circumstances where taking a woman's fallopian tubes off is actually preventative of cancer, but by and large, elective tubal ligations are something I do not do. They wanted me to, and it's cost me at least three jobs in the last year or so. So uh, just this week, uh, I lost all my work in Florida for January. Mm. So, um, you know, it's upsetting, but I know that uh, the two things I've learned are uh, the two T's, uh, trust and thanks. And so I'm in a trustful, thankful mode that things will work out this month. (laughs) Wow. Well, let me, um, and actually have a few other questions, but I'm going to come back to this issue of the tubal ligations, and you mentioned Humana Vitae and Theology of the Body, um, both uh, from John Paul, St. John Paul II. Um, and so tell us a little bit about, um, you know, briefly, obviously, I know we could do a whole show on Humana Vitae and the Theology of the Body, but tell us specifically, um, as to your profession, what spoke to you about those documents um, that that helped convict you and make this decision that obviously has, has come at great sacrifice? Well, I think most people kind of look at their own personal lives as, um, you know, their life's experience and, and how do we relate our day-to-day living with the teachings of the church. And as I looked at my family, uh, we had uh, six children. And uh, unfortunately, we have lost two of the children uh, to um, uh, an accident and, and a medical condition. Uh, but, but basically, I remember uh, going in the military uh, to pilot training. And uh, Chris and I, that's my wife, uh, decided that we, uh, we were expecting our third child. And that was enough. And so I was going to get a, you know, a vasectomy when I was in training. And I asked the doctor, and he looked at me, he goes, you're too young, you're 25, and I'm not going to do it. And I just let it go. And we had our daughter, Carrie, uh, who's our third child. And then shortly thereafter, we lost Adam in a car accident. And so after that, you know, we had three more beautiful children that I would never, ever um, wish to not have had. So just a personal experience, realizing that, um, without the church teaching that um, you have to be open to the sanctity of life. And then once I realized the teaching of the church to Manadite, that it was reaffirmed that we have to be open uh, to the possibility of children in our lives, that, um, you know, sometimes God just, uh, he'll speak to you without you really even knowing it. So mm-hmm. you do the right thing without the um, philosophical or theological doctrine to back it up. But once I got that, it's like wow! I'm sure glad I sure glad <laughs> I did what I did, and, and because it, it just so, makes so much sense. Um, and I think the problem is that uh, so many doctors and, and people in America, uh, in this culture of doubt, they just listen to uh, things that are basically, basically um, you know, the, the theology of self and what what matters to you, and uh, it's really not relativism. About yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, secular relativism. At its finest. So, um, yeah, certainly when um, I read Humanavitae, and especially 
when we went to Theology of the Body. We've been through most of the courses, but Theology of the Body, one that was just so obvious, what, what uh, God is saying through the scriptures and, and the TOB is, is just really gets that message out there. Now, you had mentioned um, that you'd had three children after you'd made that decision to, yes. to not have the vasectomy. Um, I know one of those children was um, born with Asperger's and has since yes. passed. Did yes. that help form your conviction to honor the sanctity of life? I mean, I know a lot of women are told today, you know, especially if they're over 30, oh, you know, you have this child, they do various tests. I have a good friend who was told that she should terminate her pregnancy because her child was going to be down syndrome. In fact, she was told that with both of her children. She did not terminate either of those pregnancies, and both of those children ended up perfectly healthy. Um, But even if they hadn't, uh, having a child with Asperger's and special needs, did that in any way um, firm your conviction to to honor that sanctity of life, and and if so, how? Oh, yes. Um, Well, we didn't know what was affecting Mike. He was always um, a very um, energetic child, very intelligent, very sports-minded. And as he was growing up, um, we realized he was a little different. Um, One of the things he didn't do uh, right away was speak, and so we took him to a... um, speech uh, pathologist, and uh, they worked with him. So Mike, as, as we got into high school years, was really acting out. Um, he was self-medicating with uh, marijuana and uh, Adderall, a stimulant, and uh, he really kind of had a psychotic break, and uh, he just was really difficult. And I took him to a psychiatrist in California who right away declared him to be schizophrenic. Hmm. and put him on some medication, and uh, he, he calmed him right down, and we were able to live with him. We thought, well, this is great. You know, it's too bad he's got this diagnosis of schizophrenia, but at least now we know what it is, and, and there's a cure for it, or at least there's a treatment. Many, many years later, through the help of friends and others, we realized that, in fact, he did not have schizophrenia, that he had Asperger's. Hmm. So I know I kind of ramble with my answers, but basically... <laughs> Um, the fact that we we had a beautiful child, um, you know, after we made the decision to, to be open to life. We became Catholic, by the way, in 1976. So uh, the first few children were pre-Catholic and the last uh, few were post-Catholic. <laughs> what would you tell someone who is facing that decision? Uh, you've done tests. You find that, you know, there is a good chance that a child um, is going to be born with Down syndrome. What do you tell that woman? As a, as a Catholic obstetrician? Oh, um, absolutely. I, I say, look, everybody has a choice in how they handle their personal affairs. And um, without getting preachy, I would tell them that, that this is a child of God and you need to be open to the possibility of, of raising that child forever long you have them. Um, I, I try not to, to put a giant guilt trip, I guess, is a Hmm. The common word to use on the patient, but I, I, if I do any preaching, it's like no, you know. I, I always ask patients, by the way, what's your faith base? Okay, if they say they're atheists, well, then I might take a lighter approach. And and I do mention, you know, the sanctity of life, and and that children with Down syndrome, for example, tend to do very well in 
they can be very inspirational children. They can they can be wonderful people. They are wonderful people. They're all children of God, and so you really need to be open to the possibility of of bringing that child into life. If they happen to be Catholic, then I give them a rosary and I say, "You need to pray about this." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know, you kind of tailor make it to what their faith base is. You know, we live in a world where I work for corporate America, and so I can't be you know up on a pedestal you know, with a rosary at work. But if I have the opportunity, um, like I said, I always ask them, what's your faith base? And especially if there's a difficult situation, um, I do, you know, talk about it. And if they're Catholic, uh, I've been known to uh, teach supposed Catholics that didn't know how to play the rosary, find them a rosary <laughs> and somebody use it. So <laughs> we have an opportunity as Catholic doctors. We just don't take it because we're so afraid of the consequences of what corporate America might do. Hmm. Uh, I'm in a, a nice position that I have um, pretty good skills, and I'm in demand, so I guess I can be <laughs> a little more bold. You know, like I said, I, I take pride almost in the fact I've been fired from three different hospitals, <laughs> because I know I can go work someplace else. <laughs> well, and actually, that was one of my questions. Surely, you know, that that wasn't how you always were. You know, you mentioned no. that you were a convert. And yeah. um, and in, in an interview last year, you were telling me, you know, no tubal ligations, no contraception. Um, right. You said you just have to get to a point where you can say no. So right. how do you do that? Tell me a little bit about your journey and what got you from A to B. Well, like I said, um I never would do an abortion, never have, never will. Um, you know, there's a medical term, abortion, which is, you know, not used in the same sense as, you know, secular term. You know, if, if there's yeah. a, a, a baby that's not viable, that's, a, that's already passed, then, you know, we remove the baby uh, because it's, it's dead, basically. But they call those abortions, but, you know, just in that's a hair right. splitter. Uh, but I've never done any of that. So as far as the tubal ligations, as I said, Dr. Helen Krauss kind of called me out on it, and I started looking at it. In fact, I had I had made the decision previously when I was in private practice in Indiana. Some of my patients came to me, and they said, Dr. Mackey, how can you be prescribing birth control pills? You're Catholic. This was in the late 90s. Hmm. So I decided not to do that. And guess what? Um, nobody would come to me. <laughs> the <laughs> hospital, you know, gave me grief, and they said, you have to do that if you're staying here. And unfortunately, I had uh, a longstanding contract that I couldn't get out of, so I succumbed. Uh, mm. But but then with time, and, you know, like I said, sometimes it's the situation that you're in, but with time I realized that uh, I just have to be bold. I believe the teachings of the Church to be absolutely correct. And so... That happened a few years ago, within the last five years, and, and since that point, um, I have made it very well known. In fact, when I do a job interview, uh, the first thing I talk to them about is I said, you know I don't do tubal ligations under any circumstances. Is that a deal breaker? And mm -hmm. some people said yes, and others said, no, no, we don't care. In fact, the last interview I had in California, the program director was Jewish and is Right-hand man was a Hindu. They said, oh, no, we, if you're Catholic, we, we go with that. It's fine. It's, it seems like the Catholic people have more problem with Catholics doing the right thing than the other, <laughs> <than> the other <laughs> faiths. <laughs> oh, my goodness. 
Well, I remember you did say um, to me, you know, that at some point um, you had to make a choice, either to quit right. entirely or not, um, and that God helped you in that decision. Yeah. And you, you'd mentioned a couple of things, and I was hoping you might share that with us today. Some stories when you'd first committed and um, you, I, I think it was a tubal ligation. Do you recall that story? You have to remind me. A lot of water has gone under the bridge. <laughs> um, I think it oh, was... Oh, I know what it was. I remember it. Sure. You were yeah, praying about California. it. Yeah, I was in California, and basically this was one of the hospitals that eventually fired me. But but I was, I was sitting in the room, and the chief came up to me and said, um, you have a tubal today. I said, but I don't do tubals. He goes, well, you need to find a way to do it. And uh, things have changed a little bit since then, but, but back then there was a thing you could do called a total um, self-injection. We took off the total fallopian tube as possible prevention of ovarian cancer. Mm. Um, I checked with the, uh, the chief guy at the Catholic Bioethics, uh, Dr. John Haas. He goes, nah, it's not a very strong argument. You, you're, you can't do that. It's, it's not okay. And um, so I thought, oh, man, here I am stuck. And I said, well, you know, maybe maybe I'll just do that anyways, you know, because maybe there's a 1% to 2% chance uh, we can save a woman from having ovarian cancer. So I'm sitting in the, the OR waiting for anesthesia to put in the spinal. So I wait, and the guy's like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I'm praying that he doesn't get it in, by the way, and he doesn't get it in. So now the chief of anesthesia comes in the room like, what's wrong with you? You Let me show you how to do it. And so he tries for another half an hour, and he can't get it. Hmm. And I said, well, guys, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) And so I walked out of the room, and the woman did not get her tubal ligation that way. Well, and, you know, so this is just one of the many challenges that you face, um, and that will continue to plague you know, the field of, of obstetrics and gynecology, sure. as well as Catholic doctors practicing in that field. And it's not, not just obstacles for doctors, um, for patients as well. Um, sure. I know that there are women who are suffering severe pain uh, during that special time of the month, frequently encouraged sure. to, to get on the pill um, right. so that the contraceptive can regulate their cycles, um, alleviate possible pain from endometriosis. Um, a host of other reasons that, where they're very quick to encourage women to get on contraception. You know, there are other women that are, you know, getting older or looking to, to pause or, or postpone, you know, pregnancy temporarily. And I have to say, I don't think natural family planning are three words that are commonly heard in most obstetric or gynecological offices today. Right. What do you tell patients who come to you with, with these symptoms? I mean, I you know, I have a teenager um, who who goes through some some very difficult you know days during the month, and at 16 the very first thing they wanted her to do was get on the pill, which we did not do. But sure. you know what? And then then they were they were saying she you know oh she most likely has an endometriosis, and I'm like well, you know they they couldn't really conclude that unless they they did a laparoscopy and right. they didn't that was considered invasive. It was considered better to put a, a girl, even a young girl on contraception, even though it could cause other issues down the line. What sure. do you advise, you know, these these women and, and parents who are facing that? Well, there is a, a growing, but uh, again, a, a group that's being opposed a lot, uh, 
there's several different groups. The one that comes most to mind is NAPRO Technology Creighton Institute. Dr. Hilgers uh, has a wonderful program, a fellowship for doctors to learn how to uh, treat patients without using uh, birth control or those type of things. Uh, with endometriosis, you're right, uh, uh, laparoscopy is is the best way to determine it. And if I had a 16-year-old girl and she had that problem, I would offer her a laparoscopy. There always is the risk of surgery, uh, but you know, there are the big biggest risk of uh, laparoscopy for a, a young person is probably the anesthesia part of it. Mm. Uh, there are other risks, um, you know, damage to internal organs, etc. But I think laparoscopy is a very good thing to do to, to check it out. And then if there is, you know, endometriosis, you can take care of it on the spot. You can. Uh, you can get rid of it at surgery. So it's diagnostic, and it's also, if there is endometriosis, you can't treat it on the spot. Um, so I, I think that is a good alternative. Um, they're now looking at the menstrual cycle as the fifth vital sign. So it can be used for mm. uh, predicting disease, endometriosis, or cancers. And, of course, if you want to use that to regulate uh, not getting pregnant at the at, you know given time, or to try to cheat pregnancy, it does all that. So we're going to be doing that. My wife and I both uh, in June, bringing that to uh, to the Melbourne area, uh, and we encourage other doctors to do that. So the thing is, there's always the easy way, and this is what uh, our governing board will. You know, they they basically have ninety percent of the doctors just kind of you know, uh, marching to what they say is, you know, the standard of care. But they don't, they're not looking at what the Catholic standard of care is. There are alternatives that we can do to give our patients relief from pain and, and uh, not be putting them all on birth control. Hmm. Um, I know that uh, natural family planning isn't your area of expertise, but certainly that is, is an option. Um, for families that either need to postpone or delay uh, pregnancy for a variety of reasons. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about, um, yeah, I think the common conception of natural family planning is, you know, you know, abstaining and, and moving around, you know, this, the calendar. <laughs> um, sure. Can you tell me a little bit about what natural family planning is and some of the beneficial aspects to a marriage that practices it? Well, sure. First of all, it it is a two-person thing. Uh, it's not just the woman, right? Birth control is just the woman, and then she does whatever she wants. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't include the male. And, it, you know, it a marriage is two people, not one. So mm. basically, natural family planning, used to, they used to talk about the rhythm or the Billings method, and, you know, you have a calendar, and um, the problem with um, using those methods is uh, if a woman doesn't have a regular menstrual cycle, she's kind of, you know, using a lot of guesswork. Mm-hmm. Uh, without getting real technical, um, the way to predict when a woman ovulates is only looking backwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if she has a 28-day cycle, uh, and that would be a perfect cycle, but they can be a week off, it can be 21 to 35 days, but if she has a 28-day cycle, typically you, you ovulate 14 days before. Well, if you're lucky enough to have one of those perfect 28-day cycles, you just abstain, let's say, days 
you know, 12 through 16 or 17, and, and you're, you're golden, right? Hmm. But um, if you're one of those people that don't have that perfect cycle, and let's say you have a 21-day or 35-day cycle, then there's a high likelihood you get pregnant. And I think that's what's, you know, caused those programs to be kind of laughed at, like, oh, they're not very effective. But when you use one of the more advanced, one of the modern programs, whether it be FEM or the Creighton method or, or the other ones, the thermosymptom ones, you, you take your temperature. That When you ovulate, um, you, um, progesterone is, um, changes, and it has a little bit of a temperature change that you can see on a thermometer. You also look at certain um, physical changes in the woman. I won't get into the... You know, yeah. the part of it, but but basically, a woman can monitor what her body's doing by a combination of things, by but what her body is doing by using your temperature, and then being able to tell if she is in a fertile phase or not. And if she's in a fertile phase, if she they want to have a baby, then they do. And if she's in a non-fertile phase, then you do something else. And and something else is not watching pornography or doing other things. It's praying and, and sanctifying the marriage. And it's a good time for the couple uh, to use a little bit of discipline. It's a little bit of time to call on God to bring the other beautiful benefits of, of a marriage other than that most intimate part, the sexual union. You can still be very intimate with a person without having the sexual union. And that's a good time to do that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, I I took a course that uh, one a woman was in there that had a child with Down syndrome. And so because it was a, a big challenge to raise this child, the child was still quite young, they had decided to go uh, the route of natural family planning. And she was she was very young. And she said that it had actually been such a blessing to them because their marriage had increased in intimacy in ways they had not even considered. Um, just from conversation to, you know, just embracing one another, holding one another, um, just a lot of beautiful things had come out of that. And I think that we live in such a society of, you know, I should be able to have what I want when I want it. Right. And uh, the gift of the spirit of self-control has kind of gone out the window. Um, sure. And we forget that, you know, we look at self-control as denial, but really self-control can reap such beautiful gifts, especially in a marriage when it opens up other options um, for for intimacy and for sharing at a different level. Um, and that, and those are the things that are going to get you through in, in older age and difficulties um, with children and in difficulties in life as we age and the things that we face. So, yeah, you're exactly right. And we live in an age, uh, let's face it, instant gratification. You know, mm-hmm. we want the instant answer to any question that we can get on the internet or cell phones or whatever. And, you know, we want to be satisfied in so many ways, but it needs to be immediately fast food and all the rest. I'm not condemning these things, but that's kind of how most people are. I'm that way too. You know, um, Oh, who was in this movie? Oh, let's look it up. You know, there's no more, you know, um, trying to remember who it was, but, but what, what is marriage? What is the sacrament of marriage? It's two people that have made a commitment to basically elevate each of their life states to a point where they can attain heaven as their final goal. We all are supposed to be mindful that our ultimate goal should be 
to be with God, to be with Jesus as a saint, right? Hmm. So that's what you can work on in the spare time. You can work on your sainthood. And people, <laughs> oh, that sounds like some corny or well, religious thing. But, <laughs> but Well, this has clearly been, you know, a journey for you to get to this point of being able to say no um, you know, to certain certain practices that are considered um, common in your field. What right. can you say to those who want to be um, OBGYNs and are regarding the honor, honoring their faith through their profession? Well, this is a little pitch. They should come to a couple Catholic Medical Association meetings <laughs> where, where you have doctors that are going through the same thing. And as I said, it's not just OBGYNs. I get calls from anesthesiologists that are asked to be there you know, uh, for tubal ligations and abortions and all the rest. And, and they have a struggle because, let's face it, the hospitals, they control uh, what they want their doctors to do. And not every do- every hospital is a Catholic hospital. Certainly, working at a Catholic institute should be so- somewhat of a sanctuary. So uh, that is an option. I've been trying to get work at a Catholic hospital. It hasn't worked out yet. But it's just what where I'm at, right? Mm. But I think anybody that has an inclination to be an obstetrician, they they need to know it's it's very difficult, very long hours, but the the rewards are tremendous. And mm. to be a good Catholic obstetrician is even better. It's even better. It's you know I, a lot of times they use athletes and the analogy of. You know, life is is like being an athlete. You know, if you want to get someplace, you have to go through a lot of sacrifice, a lot of pain. You know, you don't just get to be uh, an Olympic uh, gold medal athlete by doing nothing. You know, you really, really have to work hard. So the same thing applies. If you want to be a doctor, you're going to have to study hard. You have to sacrifice things, and it's it is a big journey. And to be a Catholic obstetrician, it's even harder, but it's it's even more worthwhile. So, you know, the, the prize at the end of the tunnel is even greater if you mm-hmm. take the Catholic approach. But certainly, if you want to be an OB-GYN, do it and try to be a Catholic one because it's even more rewarding. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Mackey will be at the White Mass along with Bishop John Noonan of the Diocese of Orlando, honoring and praying for all those in the healthcare care professions Saturday, February 3rd at 4.30 p.m. at Holy Name of Jesus Catholic Church in Indianapolis. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. This is Glenda Meekins for Faith Fit Radio. Thank you for listening. 